Our Father, we are grateful that we are not we're not living life by ourselves. A lot of people think there's nothing beyond this world. There's nothing beyond the material universe. But we thank you that you were there. We thank you that you are God, that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are a shepherd. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. You care for us. You lead us. You know what we need. You know our, uh, you know our physical condition. You know our spiritual condition. You know where we are emotionally. You know when we're just hanging on by our fingernail. You know the pressures of life and when they are threatening to uh, overwhelm us and drown us. You know everything about us. Everything. You know more about us than we know about ourselves. You understand our thought from afar. It's good to know that. And it's good to know that you care. It's good to know that you love us. It's good to know that you have sought us out. Because we certainly weren't seeking you. You loved us before we first loved you. We are astonished at your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your forgiveness. How much we need that. We are glad that we can stand before you in Christ with our sins forgiven because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin. He took upon our sin, upon him. And he who lived a sinless life and was God went to the cross and died in our place as our substitute. And the wrath that should have come upon us came upon him. And he paid it all. We will never get over that. We are astonished by that. And we are so grateful. We are grateful not only that you gave us life physically, you gave us life spiritually, but that you sustain us and keep us going through life, through all the, uh, through all the chapters of life. Our lives are like a book. And there are chapters and they're as clearly marked as if they were in print. We can kind of sense when we're coming to an end of a chapter and a transition's coming and it'll come. And then we're in a new chapter. And uh, it's all new to us. And we get a little anxious because we're not sure how it's going to sort out or how we're going to make it or what's going to happen. But see, you know because you've written all the chapters. And you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We change. As we get older, we start breaking down. But you're the same. So we trust in you to give us what we need. I pray for uh, encouragement for every man that's here tonight. As we open your word, thank, we're thankful that you never lie to us. We're thankful that your word can be trusted, that your word is true, that some of your word is truth, Psalm 119 says. We need your truth. We need the facts so that we can live wisely and carefully. 
Give us teachable hearts tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this series, and the key word is anchor. Uh, the, uh, we've been talking about anchoring our families in Christ. And the way that uh, we anchor our families in Christ is that we as men, as individual men, we're anchored on Christ. Uh, we've been looking at... Uh, different aspects of our relationship with God. Because the more that we know God, the more anchored that we are in life, and the more that we know God and know his truth and know the facts about God, that makes a difference in how we view life and how we live life and how we handle pressure and how we handle adversity. Uh, we know the promises of God and the more we hang on to what God says, what it does is it changes our outlook on life and our perspective on life. The more I know God, the better I can fight off fear. The more I know God, the better I can fight off anxiety. The, the, the more I know God, the more hopeful I will be, regardless of what's going on around me because of what God has promised to do. The more I know God and know that he owns history and owns the future, owns it, owns it, has the copyright, the patent, belongs to him, well, that makes me secure as I move ahead in life. So really... The way that I anchor my family, and, and my gosh, people are scared senseless these days. There's all this havoc, there's all this turmoil, there's all this trouble. I mean, really, is there any certainty? There's not much. Uh, we're watching the foundations being destroyed. And we see it every time we check in with the news. So you don't want to check in with the news too often. But you want to check in with your Bible. I, I, I read this week in the Wall Street Journal that the average individual with an iPhone checks it 80 times a day. 80, 80. That's average. And this article was talking about how much stress that puts on us and causes our blood pressure to... Quite fascinating article. I wonder what would happen if I checked my Bible just eight times a day. I find when I check my Bible, <laughs> my blood pressure kind of levels out. And uh, there's a calm and there's a sense of well-being, and there's a sense of security and uh, peace. It's all a matter of perspective. So we've been looking at who God is and his truth, and in recent weeks we've talked about being anchored in God's love, being anchored in God's uh, goodness. Tonight I want us to look in the Scriptures 
about being anchored in God's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. And in order to be anchored in God's forgiveness, we have to think wisely, wisely and carefully. So tonight, here's where we're going. Um, three main ideas we'll look at tonight on this topic. Number one, we want to think wisely about forgiveness. Secondly, we want to think wisely about repentance. What is that? Thirdly, we want to think wisely about restoration. All of those things come under the uh, umbrella in Scripture of God's forgiveness. Over 40 years ago, Josh McDowell came out with a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I still have my original copy. Um, Josh, most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with Josh and his ministry. But he, uh, Josh was with Campus Crusade, still is, and has spoken at hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of college campuses and universities. Uh, I heard him in California at Cal State Fullerton in the quad. They just set up a mic and... Uh, uh, and he went at it, uh, proving the claims of Christianity. And uh, it was the late 60s, just before he came, the tax squad had been on campus. A lot of upheaval, a lot of, he, I mean, the guy's fearless. He would just get up there and start talking. And he knew his stuff. And, and he put a book together called Evidence That Demands a Verdict in order to help Christians sure helped me and a lot of other young Christians uh, <clears throat> understand uh, we're always getting attacked. Christianity's getting attacked. And uh, Peter tells us to be ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within you. Uh, and you'll get attacked on a college campus. Well, you can't trust the New Testament. I mean, those manuscripts were made up and all of this stuff. Well, he'll give you five pages on, on just the manuscripts. You know, he'll give you, I mean, uh, it's just, it's just, he loads you for bear with facts uh, in regard to Christianity. And, well, what he's done is, and this just came out this week, he and his son, Sean, who teaches at Bible University, PhD, have come out with a updated and revised evidence that demands a verdict. It's a lot bigger than the other one. Uh, it's dealing with stuff that we weren't dealing with 40 years ago. But one of the things uh, I've appreciated is that at the beginning is, is Josh's personal testimony. Uh, he didn't grow up in a Christian home. He grew up on a farm in Michigan. Uh, had absolutely no interest in Christ. Uh, his plan was to become, uh, was to do well in, in uh, university, which he obviously did and then become uh, governor of Michigan, and then become United States senator from Michigan. That, and I'm, that, that was his plan. And while he was in college, he met a group of Christians, and uh, they challenged him. And he was laughing at them and telling them the Bible isn't true, and they were basically morons for even thinking it. And a girl challenged him, and, and she knew some stuff, and she kind of set him back on his heels. 
And he wasn't used to someone setting him back on his heels intellectually. So he decided he was going to do a little study and, and uh, prove her wrong. And what he, when he started studying, he got a little disturbed because uh, she was right. But that couldn't be right. And he kept studying, and he, got, and, and he got so into this thing. And he's a researcher. He actually dropped out of school for a number of months, went to Europe to read original sources in libraries in Europe, came back, studied uh, in the library at University of Michigan and then at Harvard, uh, all because he was going to write a book about this nonsense of Christianity that so many people had been duped into believing. And one night in the library at Michigan, he sat back in his chair after months and months and said to himself, it's true. It's true. <laughs> so that's his story. And he's been going around saying it's true ever since. Debates with atheists, all, you know, quite a guy. But I was reading his testimony. And after he came to know Christ, some other things occurred. He said, perhaps the most significant change that occurred in my life was in the area of hatred and bitterness after he found Christ. I grew up filled with hatred primarily aimed at one man whom I hated more than anyone else on the face of the earth. I despised everything this man stood for. I can remember as a young boy lying in bed at night plotting how I would kill this man without being caught by the police. The man was my father. When, when I was growing up, my father was the town drunk. Somehow, he was also a pretty successful farmer, but he was a drunk. I hardly ever saw him sober. My friends at school would joke about my dad lying in the gutter downtown making a fool of himself. Uh, their jokes hurt me deep, deeply, but I would not let anyone know. I laughed along with them and kept my pain a secret. I would come home and I would sometimes find my mother in the barn, not in the house, but in the barn, lying in the manure behind the cows where my dad had beaten her with a hose until she couldn't get up. My hatred seethed as I vowed to myself, when I am strong enough, I'm going to kill him. Sometimes when visitors were coming over and my dad was drunk, I would grab him around the neck, pull him out to the barn, and tie him up. After tying his hands and feet, I would loop part of the rope around his neck hoping he would try to get away and choke himself. Then I would park uh, his truck behind the silo and tell everyone he had gone to a meeting so now he wouldn't be, we wouldn't be embarrassed as a family. Two months before I graduated from high school, I walked into the house after a date to hear my mother sobbing. I ran into her room and she sat up in bed and she said, son, your father has broken my heart. She put her arms around me and pulled me close. I, I have lost the will to live. All I want to do is live until you graduate, and then I want to die. Two months later, I graduated, and a few months later, my mother died. I hated my father for that. Had I not left home a few months after the funeral to in college, I might have killed him. But I made a decision to place my trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. When I did that, the love of God inundated my life. Five months after becoming a Christian, I found myself looking at my dad right in the eye and saying, Dad, I love you. I did not want to love him, but I did. God's love had changed my heart. When I transferred to Wheaton College, shortly thereafter, I was in a 
pretty serious automobile accident, hit by a drunk driver. Uh, I was in the hospital for quite a while. Then I was moved home to recover. One day, my father came in to see me. He was sober. He seemed uneasy, pacing back and forth in my room. Then he blurted out, how can you love a father like me? And I explained the gospel to him. And I told him that I couldn't explain it, but God had taken away the hatred I had and replaced it with love for him. And we talked for nearly an hour. And then he said, son, if God can do in my life what I've seen him do in yours, I, 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 I want to have him come into my life. And he trusted Christ. Josh goes on and says, after I trusted Christ, my life was basically changed in six to 18 months. But my dad's life was changed right before my eyes. Never took another drink again. Uh, 14 months later, he died from complications of his alcoholism. But in that 14-month period, over 100 people in the area around my tiny hometown committed their lives to Jesus Christ because of the change they saw in the town drunk, my dad. He goes on, he says, but I need to tell you that my father was not the only man that I hated. And then he talks about a man who was, was perhaps foreman, uh, chef, a key player on that farm, who um, from the time Joshua 6 had sexually abused him until he got into his teens. Uh, and when he got into his teens and got some size on him, the man came up and put his hand on his shoulder and he turned around and said, if you ever touch me, even once, I'll kill you. And the guy never bothered him again. And a few years later, he left. When Josh came to know Christ, years after, he kept thinking about this man, and he, he thought he, he had to track him down. And one night he did. And in his own words, when I knocked on the door and he opened the door, I said, Wayne, what you did to me was evil, very evil, but I've come to know Christ as my Savior and Lord, and I have come here to tell you. And I paused, asked God for strength. I've come to tell you that all of us have sinned and no one measures up to God's standard of perfection. We all need redemption. And I've come to tell you that I forgive you. He looked at me without blinking. For a moment, I wished it wasn't true, but it was true, and I had to say it. Wayne, Christ died for you as much as he died for me. He didn't respond. I paused, and I turned around to leave, and as I was leaving, I turned to face him one more time, and I said, one other thing, Wayne. Don't ever let me hear of you touching a young man again, because you'll regret it. It was good he did that. It was very good. Out of obedience to God's command, I had chosen to forgive a man who had deeply hurt me. Forgiveness is an action, not an emotion. 
As I pulled away in my car, there was no high or low point of emotion that one might expect. Instead, I recognized the peace in my heart unlike anything I had experienced before. You never know what people have been through. You just never know. But everybody has a story. And everybody's been wounded and everybody's been hurt. And everybody needs Christ. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the fact that Christ came to die for our sin so that our sins could be forgiven. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, For I delivered you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that on the third day he rose from the dead. He then appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and then to five hundred at one time. And lastly, Paul says, he appeared to me. Now, that's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. And he paid the price. The last words that Jesus uttered on the cross, he uttered the words, often translated, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. Tetelestai, in, in, in those times, would often be stamped on a piece of parchment that was a bill that you owed to a merchant, or if you had been imprisoned and were sentenced for a crime, you owed Caesar X amount of time for your crime. They would put you in the cell. They would actually nail that on the wooden door. And after you were released or after you had paid your debt, there would be an imprint that would be placed on that parchment that would say to Telestai, paid in full. When it's paid in full, it's finished. The debt is taken care of. The last thing Jesus said is paid in full. He paid for your sin, he paid for mine. Now that's the gospel. It's forgiveness. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God would die for me? So tonight, we want to think wisely about forgiveness. R.C. Sproul, years ago, wrote a brief article, and the title of it was simply, Why Forgive? Why Forgive? And he starts off, uh, R.C. Sproul is a world-class theologian. Now, I'm going to tell you something about theologians. If you can't sleep at night, just pick a theologian, and, and if he has a podcast, watch it for about 90 seconds, and you'll be unconscious. <laughs> they tend not to be great communicators. They're tremendous thinkers. This is a generalization. What's unique about R.C. Sproul is he is a brilliant biblical thinker, but he is a remarkable and effective communicator. He's a wonderful man to listen to. He's a great teacher. He starts this question, this article, Why Forgive, throws out two things. 
When someone orders us to do something or imposes an obligation, it is natural for us to ask two questions. The first question is, why should I? Why should I? Now, I'm going to take a minute here and subtly look at my watch because I don't see my time clock here. And since you guys probably want to be home by 12, <laughs> uh, I'm just checking in here. So I'm going to put this down here. It's, we're good. Oh, there it is. It fell off the, uh, oh, I see it. Thank you. Yeah, okay, so we're good. Everything's fine. Is that uh, Central Time or uh, Pacific? <laughs> is that Pacific Time, Sean? Okay, I'll work with it. When someone orders us to do something or imposes an obligation, it is natural for us to ask two questions. The first question is, why should I? And the second is, who says so? The why and the authority behind the mandate are very important to the question of forgiveness. To answer the question of why we should be forgiving people, we need to look briefly at the account in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18. So let's turn to Matthew 18 if you have your Bible with you. Peter's going to uh, ask a question, as he often would do. He wasn't afraid to raise his hand in class. That's a good thing. That's a, good, that's a great trait, actually. Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Uh, this was a term, uh, a number that was kind of used in, in, in the sense of uh, infinity. You just, you never stop. For this reason, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who, wishes, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So Peter's thinking, you know, I'm in pretty good shape. Someone offends me and, you know, they ask for forgiveness. I mean, what, how many times do you do that? You know, six, seven times? No. You always do it. Seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Jesus was always telling parables. He's always telling stories to illustrate the truth. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That's a lot of money. That's big time number. Huge. But since the slave did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt, the huge debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. You say, how much is that? It's, it's not much. It's like pocket change. Okay? 
And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, Sproul, his comments are worth... paying close attention to. In this parable, the point of Jesus' teaching is clear. That's the why for forgiving others is rooted in the fact that we have been recipients of extraordinary mercy and compassion. So he started off by saying, when someone orders us to do something or imposes an obligation, we ask two questions. First question is what? Why should I? Okay. What's the second question? Who says so? He's breaking it down. The why of forgiving others is rooted in the fact that we have been recipients of extraordinary mercy and compassion. We are all debtors who cannot pay their debts to God, yet God has been gracious enough to grant us forgiveness in Christ. It is no wonder that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs his disciples to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is a parallel, a joint movement of compassion that is first received from God, and then we in turn exercise the same compassion to others. God makes it clear that if we lack that compassion and harbor vengeance in our heart, rather than being ready to forgive again and again, we will forfeit any forgiveness that has been given to us. Thus, the foundation for a forgiving spirit is the experience of divine grace. It is by grace that we are saved, it is by grace that we live. It is by grace that we have been forgiven. Therefore, the why of forgiving is to manifest our own gratitude for the grace we have received. Again, the parable of Jesus points to one who took the grace that he received for granted and refused to act in a way that mirrored and reflected the kindness of God. Why should we forgive? Simply because God forgives us. Now, as we're reading this, you should have someone in mind, and you do. I do. It is not an insignificant thing to add on to why the point that we are commanded by that God of grace to exercise grace in return. Said again, it is not an insignificant thing to add on to the why, the point that we are commanded by that God of grace to exercise grace in return. So we've received amazing grace, we're to pass on amazing grace. When we look at the question of forgiveness, however, here's where you're gonna have to think, okay? I know it's been a long day. So pull out those five-hour energies. It's all right. You can sip them while you're here. 
When we look at the question of forgiveness, however, we also have to ask the second query, who says so? But I'm to forgive. And under what conditions are we to keep this requirement? So now we've got to turn to another passage, Luke 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to go to Luke 17 here. And Jesus is going to deal with that. Because you see, there's more to this than what we just read. What we just read is the basis. But there's another aspect to forgiveness. Uh, where are we going? 17. We're going to 17.3. Let's start with one. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Some translations say it is inevitable that temptations to sin come. And it is. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. So we're talking about someone who has done great sin and great damage to little ones, to those who cannot protect themselves, to those who cannot defend themselves, to those who can easily be taken advantage of. You get this, don't you? For those who do something like this, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Okay? Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, then forgive him. Back to Sproul. Sproul says this, it is important that we look closely, and it is, at this directive from Jesus regarding forgiveness. It is often taught in the Christian community that Christians are called to forgive those who sin against them unilaterally and universally. You just flat out forgive. We see the example of Jesus on the cross asking God to forgive those who were executing him, even though they offered no visible indication of repentance. From that example of Jesus, it's been inferred that Christians must always forgive all offenses against them, even when repentance is not offered. However, the most that we can legitimately infer from Jesus' actions on that occasion is that we have the right to forgive people unilaterally. We can do that. Though that indeed may be a wonderful thing, it is not commanded. If we look at the commandment that Jesus gives in Luke 17, 3, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Notice that the first response to the offense is not forgiveness, but rebuke. That's interesting. Dr. Howard Hendricks, for a long time, long time elder in this church, now with the Lord, legendary teacher at Dallas Seminary. I think he taught at Dallas for 50 years. 
I know he did. He taught a class called Bible Study Methods, among other classes. He'd teach you how to study the Bible. And Dr. Hendricks would, uh, one of the principles of Bible studies, a Bible study is when you study a text, is you observe what the text says. Observation. Observation. <coughs> he drilled this home. And he had a way of kind of drilling at home in class. He would take a, a verse, not necessarily a big verse, he'd take a verse, and his assign, he'd say, all right, now I want you guys to take this verse, and I want you to go home, and uh, I want you to come back with 10 principles out of this verse. There may not be 10 words in the verse, <laughs> but he's trying to teach us the importance of observation, careful observation. And we go home, we're all freaked out, and you can't sleep, and you're, you keep looking at it, and you, keep, and you know what you do? You read it, and you read it again, and you read it again, and you go, oh, hey, you know what? There's one. And you write it down, and well, there's nothing else in there. I'm telling you, there's nothing else. And an hour later, you'll get, oh, wait a minute. Well, I hadn't seen that. I'll write that down. And you come back to class, and you got 10, because you've observed the text carefully. And in his, the way that he always would do, he would say, oh, that's great. Good job. That's tremendous. Way to go. That, way to go. That's exactly what I was looking for. So here's your assignment for next class. Take that same verse, go home, bring me 10 more. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you know what? You'd get 10 more. Because you cannot exhaust the depths of this word. Because it's God's word. But you see, you've got to observe. You just don't flit over it. You don't fly by it. And, and what Sproul is saying here is a little bit controversial. And you know why it's controversial? Because most teachers just fly over it. I had someone this week send a letter, and very gracious, wonderful, kind letter about a situation, and saying we just must all forgive. And I had a friend who also received the letter, and he's pretty astute biblically. And we were on the phone later that day, and he said, did you get that letter too? And he said, yeah. Well, we're missing a piece here in this situation. And the piece we're missing in this situation is Luke 17, verse 3. See, in this situation, it would be a huge mistake just to unilaterally forgive because there's a missing piece. Let's go back to Sproul. The phrase in 17.3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Sproul says, notice that the first response to the offense is not forgiveness, but rebuke. The Christian has the right to rebuke those who commit wrongdoing against him. That's the basis for the whole procedure of church discipline in the New Testament, which is usually ignored in evangelical churches because we're afraid of getting sued. And it's not comfortable, but uh, somewhere I read, and where did I read this, that um, Jesus is head of the church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not the Board of Elders' church. It's not, it's his church. 
And a very wise pastor, I heard him say one time, when all else fails, read the directions. But see, rarely do we do this church discipline. I've seen it done in this church, and I thank God for it, done according to the scriptures. Uh, I saw it done at Peninsula Bible Church in California under Ray Stedman. Uh, I know it's been done at Watermark Church down the road, other churches. It's not real popular. But it's in the scriptures. We'll come back to that in a moment. The Christian has the right to rebuke those who commit wrongdoing against him. That's the basis for the whole procedure of church discipline in the New Testament. If we were commanded to give unilateral forgiveness to all under all circumstances, then the whole action of church discipline to redress wrongs would itself be wrong. But Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, here is where the command becomes obligatory. If the offender repents, then it's mandatory for the Christian to forgive the one who has offended him. If we refuse to give forgiveness when repentance has been manifest, then we expose ourselves to the same fate as the unforgiving servant. We open ourselves to the wrath of God, If indeed I offend someone and then repent and express my apology to them, but he refused to forgive me, then the coals of fire are on his head. Likewise, if we fail to give forgiveness, then when one who has offended us repents of the, offen repents of the offense, we expose ourselves to the coals of fire. And we are in worse shape than the one who has given the offense. He summarizes. In other words, it is transgression against God when we refuse to forgive those who have repented of their offenses to us. This is the teaching of Jesus. It is the mandate of Jesus. As we are united in Christ, we are to show that union by extending the same grace to others that he extends to us. So now, we come to our second major point. We need to take a look at repentance. How did I put it? We need to think wisely about repentance. So what's, what's repentance? It's a big deal. We just saw that Jesus taught that it was extremely important. Um, I was in a situation recently. These things are never pleasant. Um, it, it was a situation where a professing believer had given great offense uh, in, in all candor, had um, done damage to little ones, serious damage, and uh, would not acknowledge it. Uh, refused to talk about it. Refused to be accountable. Refused to admit it. This person is in leadership. Has been for a long time. Another state, another situation. 
and I was and I was in this meeting, and you know these things are so uncomfortable. But the the the, the intent of all present, honestly, this person has a history of outburst of anger, uh, which is mentioned in Scripture just before the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's mentioned in the section that talks about the deeds of the flesh. And within 15 seconds in the meeting, the outburst of anger occurred. Very uncomfortable. And those in the room are attempting to be, to tap down the anger and be loving and kind and all of that. It was, it was good people wanting to do the right thing. And I'm in this thing for, how long did it go? Half hour, 45 minutes. And then the individual, you know, this meeting's over, and storms out. And uh, and I was and I was pondering this. Something was missing. And what was missing? was the rebuke of Luke 17. And I think the reason it was missing is that everyone knew that if a rebuke came, there better be an air raid shelter close by. This happens in Christian churches. It happens in Christian homes. It, it happens. Let's think wisely here about repentance. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, so, really, what, when we say repentance, what are we talking about? In, in Scripture, the, the term... The most common term for repentance, uh, it, it means to turn. It means to turn around. Every time you make a U-turn, you're repenting. It means to go in one direction, and then by an act of your will, you turn around and go the other direction. So uh, Paul has had to write a letter of correction to the church at Corinth. And he mentions, uh, look at uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Though I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not only that you were made, you were made sorrowful, but that you were, made, you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, of turning around. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now watch this. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, uh, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is counterfeit repentance. There's two kinds of repentance. There's authentic repentance and there's counterfeit repentance. We have all seen the... Usually it's a politician who is, you know, running on the family, family values ticket and the whole thing, and he's always got his wife and his kids with him, and, and then he gets caught. 
because he lived in a double life and he gets caught. Or sometimes it's just a guy who, you know, has joined a Baptist church because he lives in the Bible Belt and he sings in the choir uh, in the church that has the greatest TV coverage in the state so that he's going to get the votes and ride on the wave of Christianity. But, um, you know, the guy's a fraud. And then he denies it when, you know, the evidence comes out that there's another woman or a series of women, and he denies it. And, you know, he did not sleep with that woman. He did not have sex with that woman. And then, you know, the DNA comes in, and suddenly, oh, my gosh, the lips quivering, you know, the whole thing. You know, theatrics 101. And we've all seen it. Uh, you've, you, you know when repentance is fake. Our kids do it. My kids did it. I remember Josh, he's a little, little guy. I caught him in a lie. I mean, he was, so, he was so convincing. He was four or five years old. He was so convincing. I mean, I knew he had done it, but he was so convincing. He's just a cute little guy, and, and I, I, all of a sudden he kind of had me. And then I came to my senses, and I thought, wait, this kid's guilty. A Johnny Cochran couldn't get this kid off. And I'm starting to waver. And so I was going to give him a spanking, and then and he said, Daddy, I tarry, I tarry, I really tarry, Daddy. He wouldn't tarry. He was tarry, he was going to get a spanking. He wouldn't tarry over what he had done. He was tarry over the consequences. Now, that's fake repentance. We've all done it. What's genuine repentance? Well, here's an example. First Thessalonians 1.9, Paul said to those people, watch this. He said, you turned from idols. You were worshiping idols, and you turned from idols to worship the living God. You're going in the wrong direction, and you've turned in the right direction. Thomas Watson, the great um, Puritan pastor, said that genuine repentance uh, is this, this is, a, this is quite a, you'll get this. Thomas Watson said, genuine repentance is the vomiting of the soul. That's the real thing. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience that is. Uh, I got, when I was in college, I got up on a Saturday morning early, about 11.30, because <laughs> I wanted to watch Vita Blue. He was going for his 30th win. And uh, I wanted to watch that game. So I grabbed a quick breakfast of uh, cream soda and some cheese, had a little green stuff on it, but I didn't want to get out. I just wanted to watch the game. And, I'm, you know, and, and, I, and all of a sudden, I just started really feeling bad. And every 30 minutes for the next 24 hours, I threw up. But the problem was, it didn't take long to get everything off my stomach. Dry heaves. It was so bad, I couldn't walk without assistance. And I'm, this is no exaggeration, for two weeks. It threw off my equilibrium. My mom had to fly down and stay with me for two weeks. Four weeks later, I was playing tennis, and a guy hit a lob, and I was going back to slam that thing 
down his throat in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and, and I'm waiting for that sucker to come down. And I went down four weeks later because my equilibrium still isn't right from that 24 hours. That's repentance. That's real repentance. You, you wretch over your sin. You hate it. You despise it. You loathe what you've done. You're sorrowful. And you've seen that. And that's real. That's so real. It can't be denied. That's what the Lord's looking for. Not fake, not counterfeit, not PR stuff. He's looking for the real thing. Let's see if I've got this. There's some traits. How am I doing? Let me give you some traits of um, worldly sorrow or false repentance. Let me give you seven traits of, of fake repentance. comes from uh, Jim Neuheiser. Uh, fake repentance is self-focused. For Samuel 15, 30. Secondly, fake repentance hates the consequences of sin. Something's bad going to happen to me. They don't hate the sin, it hates the consequences. Three, it's self-protective. It's all about them. Genesis 4, 14. Self, uh, fake repentance blames others. Genesis 3, 12. First Samuel, uh, uh, the, the fifth one is uh, fake repentance impatiently demands trust and restoration immediately. First Samuel 15. Six, criticizes the disciplinary process. Genesis 4. Seven, um, fake repentance, you'll see an unchanged heart that does not produce fruit. It's all fake. As opposed to true repentance, here are some characteristics. Number one, it's God-focused. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, Psalm 51. Two, it hates the sin, Psalm 32, 5. Three, it fully, expe- fully accepts responsibility, fully and completely. True repentance does. That's Psalm 51, 3. Four, it's concern for others that have been wounded and hurt. Second Samuel 24, 17. Five, it patience, patiently accepts the consequences. Psalm 51, 4. Six, submits to discipline and accountability. First Corinthians 10, 12. Seven, shows a changed heart that produces fruit. Psalm 51, 6. So the difference between true repentance and counterfeit repentance. Um, Let's go to the third point. We need to uh, think wisely about restoration. When we think about restoration, we've all, you know, as believers, we've all sinned and We've, yeah, we've all sinned, and sometimes we cover it up and we lie about it, as David lied about his situation with Bathsheba for over a year. Uh, Sometimes it's not that intense. It's not that, 
it's smaller stuff, and sometimes it is that. Um, we've all been in this. Uh, this is what we referred to earlier as church discipline. I, I want us to look at some verses. Let's start with Matthew 18. Because you see, it's not that we just immediately forgive somebody unilaterally, just all the time, just across the board. As Jesus said, there needs to be a rebuke and there needs to be repentance. And there's a procedure that Jesus, who is head of the church, has set up for the church. Matthew 18, uh, we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So if you have a, let's say you got a, a friend, you got a buddy, and you notice something in his life, and uh, let's say you notice that he, he works at his job, he's got a secretary, and it, he's spending a lot of time with the secretary. I mean, he's just a lot of time. It's excessive, he's always having lunch with her, he's always doing this, he's always doing this, and you're getting a little, you know, what's going on here? I mean, you know, you work together, but this is excessive. You love the guy, you want what's best for him. What do you do? Well, if you love the guy, you go and talk to him. Because he's going down a road and the bridge is out and he's going to destroy himself and destroy his family. And you can see it coming. So what do you do? You go to him and you talk to him in private. Not, not you know, not coming down on him, just saying, hey, man, I'm just kind of concerned. I want to check in with you. What's going on? Okay? So you go to him in private. That's number one. If he listens, you've won your brother. It's taken care of. It's over and done with. Number two, but if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you. Now, the tendency, if you've ever been in a situation and, and you know, you've got a circle of friends and one of the guys says, hey, I went and talked to this guy and da-da-da, but I need you guy, I need you and you to come with me. And your first response is, oh, yippee, I've always wanted to do that. Who the heck wants to do that? Yeah, you know, oh man, man, I'm really busy. I mean, it's a crazy month, crazy year, crazy decade. I don't see any possible way I can break loose. You need to break loose. Make some time to save your brother's life. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you that the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, what are you trying to do here? You're trying to save the guy. You're trying to restore him. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Whoa. In public. On a Sunday morning. The scriptures have been followed here on this. That's stellar. God blesses that. He blesses it. The point of that being that the church, then others who will see that individual around town and other can express concern. I mean, it's the whole family trying to restore. But if he doesn't listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You put him out. You put the individual out. They're disciplined. And are to us as an unbeliever, a Gentile. It's pretty harsh. It's designed to save somebody's life. Go to Galatians 
sometimes this is applied to families. Uh, church, church is comprised of families. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, well, man, I got my own faults. I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner too. Yeah, we all are. We're all messed up. We're all sinners. But watch this. You who are spiritual, who care about this guy, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Watch this. Each one looking to himself so that you will not be tempted. I got to check my own heart before I go talk to a brother. Am I, am I dealing with this in my own life? Okay, now that would take us over to Matthew 7. We call this Bible study here. So we turn a lot of pages to get to different verses. And you're saying, somebody's sitting here saying, oh man, that, you're judging the guy. You're very astute. <laughs> but Jesus said, yes, he did in Matthew 7, 1. Jesus said, it's amazing how many non-Christians know this verse. And it's amazing how, how many immature Christians know this verse. They, they, they may not know much, but they sure as heck know this one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. See right there, Jesus said you're not to judge. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, you take everything in context, right? Jesus isn't done yet. Don't interrupt him. <laughs> Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge... You will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the Douglas fir tree that's in your own eye? In other words, you look to yourself, and you deal with your own heart and what's in your life. You judge yourself first. Or, otherwise, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Say, well, this judgment thing, I, I don't, go to 1 Corinthians uh, 5. 1 Corinthians 5, you've got a man living in sin with his father's wife. Paul says not even the pagans do that. 5.1, it's actually reported there is immorality among you. Immorality of such a kind does not exist. Even among the Gentiles, someone has his father's wife. He's dealing with this. Verse 9. Uh, actually, in five, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This guy's going to have to undergo discipline in order to save his life because he's not repentant. See? You just don't unconditionally forgive somebody. They need to be rebuked and they need to repent. But this guy won't repent. Okay? I'm going to deliver him over to Satan. He's out of the church. Satan's going to work him over so that his soul will be saved. Nine, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Now watch this. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such one, a professing Christian. You say, who's worldly? Watch this. For what, 12, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? 
The answer is nothing. They're pagans. Watch this. But do you not judge those who are within the church? Those outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It's the word of God. The whole purpose of all of this is to restore and to save and to bring them back. I've seen this done. I've seen it get right up to the night before telling the church after a year of interaction. And the next morning it was going to be told to the church. And the pressure of that made the person break and repent and call the pastor. And it was dealt with. And the adultery was handled and... Reconciliation began to happen in the marriage, and the marriage was saved. And that was the whole point, was to reconcile and save and restore. I, I saw this done. There was a brilliant, gifted teacher uh, at a very strong Bible church. And... Uh, lived a wild, crazy, 60-ish, 60s, just no restraints kind of life before he came to know Christ. Came to know Christ. Uh, brilliant in the scriptures. Just brilliant. Brilliant scientist. Came to the Lord, was discipled, was teaching the Bible. Came out after a number of years that he was discipling some young men and there was inappropriate behavior going on. The scriptures were followed. There were many meetings, many, you know, it was denied. This wasn't done in three days. But after a period of months, 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 finally got to the point they had to go to the church. And on a Sunday morning they did. People were shocked, stunned. This individual denied it. Uh, people were upset. Continued in his sin, which he denied about three years or so later couldn't take it anymore. He, he decided to take his life. Being a chemist, he knew how to put a concoction together to kill himself, and he did. Drank it and woke up in the hospital. Was very upset that he did. Went back to living his lifestyle. Maybe four years later, came up with another concoction, super concoction. This was going to do the trick and kill him. He woke up. He said, I, I, I surrender all, Jesus. I get this. And he repented, went to the pastor, went to the elders. Got up on a Sunday morning and came clean. It's quite a service. And they threw a big lunch afterwards. They called it a prodigal son party. Because the prodigal had returned home. And he teaches to this day. They didn't immediately start teaching. quite a while before he taught. But you see, he proved himself. And that brings up something. I see this all the time. You see, what about leaders? What about gifted pastors and leaders who get involved in gross sin, gross immorality? Have you noticed that we're very, very quick in most churches if a man is really gifted to put a Band-Aid on this? And we've got to get him back in the pulpit as quickly as possible. Why? 
because he's so gifted. He's so gifted. Yeah, but you see in the scripture, qualifications for leadership in the church is not about giftedness, it's about character. An elder then, 1 Timothy 3, is to be above reproach. Uh, as Chuck has said so often, ministry is a character profession. James 3.1 says, not, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because teachers incur a stricter judgment. But in our day, in our day, we take the gifted, gifted man, and um, they're, they're so gifted. And within a year or two years, put them back in. And what are the consequences? There are no consequences. And young men in seminaries who are preparing for ministry are watching this. And so basically what's being said is, if you're really gifted and you screw up, I mean, really bad, really bad, you might be out for, you know, you might be on injured reserve for 24 months. And then they'll re-sign you. I, I remember a situation where I had done a conference at a very large church, and uh, I mean, honestly, when I was there, I felt the I felt the pastor. He was like a he was just too slick. He was just slick. It it just it went something went right. It just was something was wrong. But the guy preached the Bible and all this, big church growing. About six months later, I open up paper, and this guy comes out. He's been eight women in his church he's been sleeping with. About a month later, I get a call from the guy. I'd like to meet with you. I said, I don't think so. He said, no, I'd really like to meet with you. I'm really, I want to meet. And I, I said, I really don't know you. There's some other guys you ought to be talking with. Finally, I said, okay, I'll meet with you. And I, meet, I met with him. And we met for about 90 minutes, and the entire conversation was, how soon do you think I can get back in ministry? And I said to him, you shouldn't be back in ministry. I said, you know what's interesting? I've been sitting here listening to you for 90 minutes. I've never heard one word about the eight women you betrayed as their pastor. I've never heard about their husbands. I've never heard about their children. I've never heard about the betrayal of trust. I've never heard about the shame that you've put on the gospel and on the church of the living God. All I have heard is about your own self-interest and how fast you can get back up in the pulpit, in the limelight with your big check. That's all I've heard. You're, qual you're not qualified. You've, you've disqualified yourself. Oh, but the, in the Scripture, forgiveness is free. Forgiveness is free. Leadership is earned. And you're disqualified. You have no business being in a pulpit. About five months later, I get a call, and there's a restoration council for this guy. And long story short, I don't even know I went, but I went. And there's some big-time guys there with their own Christian television, you know, deals. 
And I'm sitting there. And then, you know, they start talking about, well, our brother's repenting, our brother's, and oh, we need to restore him. And I'm just sitting there and I'm listening. And finally, uh, something is put on the table that we'll, we'll work with this brother and he should be restored here in the next year. And uh, we're going around, are we all in agreement, brothers in, in Christ, under the Holy Spirit? And I'm sitting there, and I'm the last guy. And, and Steve, are you good with this? I said, no, I'm not good with this at all. What right do you guys have to put him in? In fact, the way you guys are handling this, you're accessories to his crime. He's not qualified. There's no repentance. Oh, he, he, he said he was sorry. You buying that? You know what the test of repentance is? Time. I said, here's my deal. Here's my deal. Let's wait seven years and see how he does. I just came up. It just sounded biblical to me. I, I just... <laughs> it's a true story. Seven years. Seven years. Oh, where's the grace? Where's the mercy? I said, this guy is a deceiver. He's a liar. He what about those eight women? Tell me how they're doing right now, guys. Aren't you pastors? Tell me how they're doing with Jesus Christ right now. I think you guys ought to be ashamed of yourselves, and I'm having nothing to do with this. And you're in sin if you put him back in, in my opinion. And then I reminded them of a quote of Charles Spurgeon. Because they had all read Spurgeon. Had Spurgeon's books in his library. He was the prince of preachers, great man of God. Spurgeon said, in regard to men, and I got his book in my back, lectures to my student. He said, I am very, very suspect of putting a pastor who has committed gross sin back into the pulpit. He says, he basically said, I do not think that can even be considered until that man's sin is as, until that man's, catch, I want to get it right. It cannot even be considered until that pastor's repentance is as notorious as his sin. He becomes famous, if you will, for his sorrow and for his sin. I, I'm not the one who decides. I mean, obviously, I'm just some yo-yo. But you see, I think Jesus is pretty clear. Um, I, to my knowledge, he, uh, he was not put back in. Yeah. To my, to my knowledge. You know what worries me about all this? I have that same potential in my heart. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. I don't like being rebuked. I don't like it at all. I especially don't like to rebuke when it's accurate. 
I don't like that at all. I tend to bow up. I've lied before. I made a defense. I scare me. I scare myself. It's easy to talk about this guy or this guy. I'm my biggest problem. By God's grace, I want to make sure that I'm guarding my own heart because from it flows the wellsprings of life. I, I'm trying to learn to be quick to confess my sin, not to rationalize it or, or to, not, to be quick to kill it and to deal with it. I've seen better men than me go down. And it's just God's grace. Can we be restored? Sure. Sure. But it'll take some time. And trust has got to be rebuilt. And, and I've seen that happen. It can be done. It can be done. But it's going to take some time. It won't happen in a microwave. It'll happen in God's gymnasium of discipline. And we've all been there. And when we're there, we've got to ask him for a teachable spirit so that we can learn the lessons and be trained by it. Because if we're trained by it, it'll yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, as Hebrews 12 says. This is serious stuff. Let's bow our heads. Father, it's so easy to look at others, and I'm so quick to give myself a pass. Help me and, and every man in this room to look at our own lives. Spurgeon would talk about um, a man's self-watch, that we watch over our lives. We watch carefully. We watch our steps. We watch our thoughts. We watch our uh, acquaintances. Help us to turn from sin. If, if, if there's a man here who, and Lord, this is what you do because you love us, who is specifically being convicted about something that's taking him down a road and the bridge is washed out, I pray that he will listen to you and turn away from whatever that is and turn to you and confess. And he's probably going to need to talk to a trusted brother or pastor because we don't live the Christian life by ourselves. Nothing could be more serious than this. We have families, we have children, we have grandchildren. Satan would like to take us out. We want to be anchored in you. And you've made a way for that to happen by grace and mercy that comes from your hand.
We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.